So we are in 1 Kings this morning. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but oh well. Did I forget anything? No? All right. Maybe I left the the oven on and that's what it is. I'll find out later. (laughs) That's probably what it is. All right. So we are, I started this uh, series last week just giving you an intro, kind of trying to set you up for success as best I can. Uh, First and second Kings is not incredibly complicated in a way, but in a way it is because there's a lot of characters that get thrown at you at once that you don't really recognize and the names are weird and at least weird to us. I'm sure if, you know, our names would be weird to them, right? But so it can make it difficult to keep track of what's happening. And so um, a couple of things. One is where 1 Kings picks up where 2 Samuel left off. So we're starting kind of at the end of David's story and going to lead into the beginning of Solomon's story, okay? And so that's where we're at kind of in Israel's history so, so if you don't know the story of David and who David is, just know he's a king, and he, you know, like most kings, he's thought of as pretty great, but he has some real issues too, all right? Everything's a mixed bag, okay, in the Old Testament, and everyone, just like you and me, are a mixed bag, and, and that's David. But by and large, David is considered sort of the hero king um, in Israel, and this is the end of his reign leading into Solomon, who was also a mixed bag, and the bag gets less and less mixed as we go along from king to king, worse and worse and worse, all right? Um, So I want to introduce to you some of the characters that we're going to read about and talk about this morning so that maybe by the time we get into the story, you won't be completely lost, okay? So I'm just going to introduce you to these characters, and then we'll get into the story. Does that make sense? So the, the first one, which you may recognize from First and Second Samuel, is Bathsheba. That Bathsheba, okay? Um, she became David's wife after he had her taken from her home and slept with her, a wicked abuse of his power as king. He then had her husband murdered on the battlefield. Essentially, he murdered her husband and covered it up. Um, and all of that got exposed by our next character, the prophet Nathan who God revealed to him what David had done, and Nathan had this really wise, um, kind of prophetically ingenious way of confronting David by telling him a story uh, and that exposed what David had done in a roundabout way that kind of David essentially condemns himself. Um, Nathan was a wise and wily guy. He was a great prophet, but you'll see more of his cleverness as we go. So he's this wise prophet to David who confronted David about Bathsheba um, and, and lived to tell the story. We'll see him intervene again in just a minute. We have Adonijah, kind of the villain in our story this morning. He's the son of David by one of David's wives, Haggith. Solomon was David's son by Bathsheba, okay? Things get complicated when you have multiple wives and concubines. Nowhere in the Old Testament is multiple wives commended as a good idea. Okay? There are, just because just there's an example of someone with multiple wives, and we'll see more examples, bad idea. Okay? Least of which, it makes 
everyone confused when you try to tell the story of your life, okay? So Adonijah is David's son, but by a different mom, one of his, one of his moms, one of his wives. Um, and then you have Solomon, David's son, by Bathsheba. One of Solomon's brothers staged a coup, that's Adonijah, uh, to take the throne as David was on his deathbed. Adonijah was David's fourth son. Okay, this is it gets more confusing because some of his sons die. Some of them even kill each other. Great family. Just, their family reunions were a blast. <laughs> so you have Adonijah, David's fourth. He's number four, but he's the oldest living son. All right? The first son was Amnon, who had been killed by the third son, Absalom. Absalom is then killed for killing his brother. Just knock out the top three right, like just right away. The second son, by the way, Ch uh, Chileab, I think is how you say it, disappears. We aren't told what happened to him. He maybe just died young. Okay, so Adonijah is, at this point, he's not the firstborn, but he's the oldest living son. Okay? That becomes kind of a key point later. Then you have Joab, who committed revenge murder, during David's reign, David condemned him to death, but then didn't execute him. He's a loose end in David's reign. And he should have, because Joab is bad news. Joab was guilty of murder. He should have been executed. He was not executed. And then David passes that job on to Solomon. Thank you very much, Dad. His last orders were, kill Joab, right? I mean, Take him out, uh, escort him to hell, quite literally is what he says. Make sure you escort him to hell, right? <clears throat> Imagine that being your last words. David was, you know, he, wrote, he was a sensitive fella, wrote a lot of beautiful psalms, kind of poet, musician, artsy guy, but also murderous, violent, could be petty. Fascinating, fascinating character, right? Then we have, so that's Joab, he's kind of, He's also bad news. Then we have Benaiah, Solomon's loyal hitman and his military council. He's the guy that's always standing, you know, seven or eight feet behind Solomon like this, looking scary, like he's not paying attention, but you know he is. That's Benaiah. He's the one that Solomon goes, hey, take care of that. And everybody knows what he means. That's Benaiah. And then we have Abishag, or Abishag, the Shunammite, David's last concubine, though he never apparently slept with her, he was important to him in his last days, and we'll get to know her a little bit too. All right, so those are our main characters. You'll see them again as we go, but I think it'll help you being familiar with them up front. So beginning in chapter 1, the first four verses, David is described there as being quite frail, which is a startling picture, in my opinion, about David. This is the king. This is the mighty King David. And the picture of him is not mighty or kingly at all. You see him, he's so frail that no matter how many layers of clothing they put on him, he can't get warm. He's that old. <laughs> Don't raise your hand if you have this problem, right? <laughs> so he's you know, you can imagine it starts out, right? I mean, he's walking around the, the, the palace, and he's like, man, it's kind of chilly. 
You know, he's used to walking around. I imagine David in his youth probably was shirtless a lot, but, you know, sort of walking around, all right, all right, all right, you know, <laughs> like that. And then one day he's like, yeah, it's a little chilly. He's going to throw a shirt on. And he looks around and no one else is wearing as many warm clothes as he is, but he just, ah, they're just warm natured, right? And, and he just keeps, over the years, keeps adding on clothes, and sudden, all of a sudden, he at night, even if he can't, he's got layers on, he's got blankets, he's got all of that, and he just can't get warm because his, I guess his, the, you've lost a lot of body mass and blood's not pumping the way it used to, and he can't get warm. So their solution is to go out and find a beautiful young woman named Abishag, they find, and she joins the family, does, doesn't marry him, apparently, probably just a, would be considered a concubine, even though she doesn't have sex with him. And she serves him day and night, kind of, you know, helping him in his, in his old age, and then at night she crawls into bed and he snuggles up with her to keep warm. That's what it's like to be king, I guess. Yeah, that's weird. Okay, that's weird. But it's what he did. And the picture here is of the mighty King David who has now can't even keep himself warm at night. He's incapable of doing anything for himself now. So that even this king, the mighty King David, when he meets the end of his life, is weak and frail and needs help just getting around and living his day. It isn't really clear if she had any choice in this relationship, but like Bathsheba, his authority as king most certainly meant that she did not feel free to say no. And what you're going to find is, with all of these kings, all their relationships with women were really complicated and strange because of the immense authority. And this is one of the things that the prophet Samuel warned them about when Israel said, we want a king. And he said, you don't want a king. It's a bad idea. Just because your neighbors have kings doesn't mean it's a good idea. You don't want a king. Because it comes with basically the entire nation. Everybody serves the needs of the king without question. You die, you live, and you die for the king. And that's what's going to happen. And here's one of the examples we see over and over again. Bathsheba first, now Abishag. We see this kind of, the world revolves around the king and this is just an example so if that relationship bothers you that's okay it's probably supposed to bother you a little bit all right if it makes you think less of david that's okay i think we're probably supposed to think a little less of david in that scenario this is a shocking image to be described writing about king david david was well known for his physical strength and he had always been a man of violence and here he is weak and chill, chilly and shivering in the bed, unable to keep himself warm. So while this is happening, David is basically on his deathbed. His son Adonijah stages a coup. He's a great fella. What a great loyal son. I'm, I'm shivering in my bed as I slowly fade away into death, and my son, my oldest son, is out there staging a coup, but David doesn't know this is happening. 
It begins to gather very public support for him being the successor to the throne of his father when he dies. This is the story we've seen many times with other monarchies around the world. When the king gets to the end of his life, starts to show some weakness, all the, people, all the vultures gather around watching him, waiting for him to die, like, the, like just circling in the air, waiting for him to die and positioning themselves however best they can to try to win the throne or at least get into the same room so that they can be attached to someone who wins the throne, right? His partner in the coup was Joab. Remember Joab, I already mentioned him. He should have been dead a long time ago, but here he is still lurking around in the corners and he attaches himself to Adonijah. Adonijah probably felt entitled to the throne based on him being the oldest, but this should not have been assumed. It had been prophesied that Solomon would be the new king, the next king, and David himself had declared it publicly that, that Solomon would be the next king. He, she knew this information. He had to know. Everybody else knew it. Yet here he is plotting, instead of honoring his father in his death, he plotted to take the throne while his father slowly passed away. Adonijah is not a good person. His first clue should have been his father David himself, who was the youngest of his brothers and was also king. I think he just thought, well, I'm the oldest. I should be the king. I have a right to it. I belong in the, the king's court. David's mighty men, as well as Nathan the prophet, Bathsheba, and Benaiah did not betray David. That's important. So Adonijah's out there gathering people. He's having parades for himself. I mean, think of it. Dad's in there dying. And you're out in the streets having a parade that you planned for yourself, prancing around, people are clapping, and you're pretending to be the king and having parties. It's absolutely incredible. And he's gathering support around himself. Nathan and Bathsheba consult together and come up with a plan to talk to David about it. Nathan, in his wisdom, tells Bathsheba, look, if I go in there, like I've, I've been here before. David doesn't respond well to bad news because sometimes he just takes your head off. Imagine a person who has absolute authority to, to not just condemn you to death, but to kill you on the spot, and he doesn't have to have a reason. No one can question it. No one can challenge it. He can just have you killed right there just because you looked a way that he didn't like. That kind of authority is frightening, especially if you have to give that person some bad news, and that person kind of has a history of being impetuously violent. So Nathan says, Bathsheba, look, he likes you a lot. You're pretty. Y'all got some history. You go in first. And you, you just remind him that he has, he has declared that Solomon will be king. And then just let him know, kind of in a roundabout way, that his son Adonijah is out there making a move. And then, as you're telling him this, then I'll come in. And I'll, I'll say, hey, what are you guys talking about? Hey, uh, I thought that you said Solomon was going to be king. 
And I'll just pretend like I don't know, and I'm just asking for information. Did the plan change? I just want to know, right? So this is what they do. 1 Kings 1, 41 to 53, while David is finding out that Adonijah is out there basically crowning himself the new king without authorization. And they're having a party to celebrate the win before he's even announced as king. This is what happens. David responded by having a parade for Solomon, and then the Zadok, the priest, anointed Solomon as king in front of all the people. So while Adonijah is partying and celebrating himself with his buddies, David has the real coronation. And the people are celebrating, and here's how Adonijah finds out during his party for himself. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finished feasting. Heard it meaning the trumpet and the shouting and the celebrating for Solomon. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No. For our Lord King David was made, has made Solomon king, and the king has sent him with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they had him ride on the king's mule. I love how he just keeps giving more details. I don't know if he's enjoying this news or what, but he just keeps talking. Oh, and then, and then, he just keeps going. He's, he's a fun fella. Verse 45, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, <laughs> I can't wait to meet this guy. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our lord, King David, saying, may your God make the, na the, the name of Solomon more famous than yours. And make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, as he should have. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar, that's in the temple or in the tabernacle, then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall onto the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, go to your house. So Solomon, for some reason, says, I'm not going to kill him unless you turn out to be evil. And then he brings him and he humiliates him, makes him bow down, and he says, now go to your house. Out of my sight. He comes back a little bit later. So I want to pause here and just look at how did Adonijah fail? What are the ways in which he blew this? Because he really did. This is going to end. I'll give it away. He's going to die. 
I think we all know it. We know where this is going. But it didn't have to be. He's in the family. I mean, who wants to be king? When you can be the brother of the king. That's like, the only thing better than owning a fishing boat is having a friend that owns a fishing boat. You don't have to do, the only thing better than owning a vacation house is having a friend that owns a vacation house. You with me? Like, why? What's wrong with him? He's the brother of the king. He can just do whatever he wants and he has access to the palace and the king's money and the king's influence. All he has to do is ask his brother Solomon for something and it's his. But he can't, he's not satisfied. So what's wrong? What does he do? I have four things. First, he exalted himself instead of humbling himself. God resists the proud and exalts the humble. Kings don't anoint themselves. He didn't understand this. For some reason, he didn't have the understanding that you don't, a king can't anoint himself. You don't exalt yourself to a place with God. God exalts the humble. Our job is to humble ourselves, not exalt ourselves. When we humble ourselves, God exalts us. At some point, maybe not in this life, but at some point, he lifts you up. Commentator Tony Morita calls this yearbook theology. I love this. Like, you remember, those of you who, I don't even know if they do yearbooks anymore. I haven't seen any of my kids' yearbooks in a while. But you remember when you got your yearbook, and you, what was the first thing you did? You went searching through that thing looking for who? Yourself. You went to your class, and you found your picture. What do I look like? Who am I next to? And then you went thumbing through all the pages. Did they, did they catch any photos of me, you know, at a football game or whatever? And you're looking for the club pictures and everything else if you were in clubs. Uh, and you just find, you're looking for yourself. And this is what he means by yearbook theology. It's self-centered. You thumb through the Bible looking for yourself. When you look at God, you're really looking for yourself in him. And your whole outlook on who God is and what faith is and what the Christian life is is sort of centered around your needs. Even maybe it might just be your weaknesses. Thumbing through your life looking at, oh, look how weak and broken I am. If only God would fix me. And you're still just looking at yourself. Yearbook theology is self-centered, self-absorbed, and unable to see God because your own questions and needs dominate your perspective on the Bible, on prayer, and on worship. You approach worship like medication for yourself. What am I getting out of worship? Well, it's not worship anymore <laughs> when that's what you're after. Same thing with prayer. Your prayer centers around what you need and what you want and what even your own weaknesses. God, fix me, help me, bless me. But you're not looking at him. This was Adonijah's central issue. Was his whole life centered around himself. He looked at the, the throne and the kingdom. And he thought all of it was about him. The kingdom of Israel is about me. It's here for me. It's here to make my life better. The throne is not about serving the people or serving God. It's about serving me. And so therefore he felt the most entitled to the throne because it was about him. Adonijah never expressed real concern for the will of God or what's best for the kingdom, ever. 
He just makes it about himself. Number two, he was spoiled and self-centered. He's always gotten what he wanted. We would say entitled. He felt entitled to it. Maybe it's because he's the oldest. Well, I mean, it's a real shame that my three older brothers had died. Leaving me next in line. I mean, I mourn them every day. But I am next in line. I'm entitled to it. Maybe David just never told him no. That's entirely possible. Maybe he just never heard that word in his direction. <laughs> no, you can't do that, Adonijah. I imagine it's hard to grow up in a palace and not feel a little spoiled. He's always gotten what he wanted and therefore felt entitled to the throne, even though it was common knowledge that the throne had been promised to Solomon. It's like it just didn't faze him. Surely God knows that I'm the most qualified and I should be on the throne. Third mistake, he sought the wrong counsel from traitors and yes-men instead of people of loyal and faithful character. You look at the list of people he surrounds himself with. They're all just people who are excited that maybe he's going to be king and we can be attached to him in some way and no one's telling him the truth. Hey, man, slow down. Like, what are you doing? Your dad's dying. The king is dying. Solomon's been promised a throne. Be happy for him. What are you doing? No one's telling him this. That's easy to do in life, isn't it? We gravitate to people who smile at us and say yes to us all the time. It's the person who says, hold on a minute, maybe that's not a good decision that we need in our life. So number four, not only did he exalt himself, but he opposed God's choice of Solomon. I think you can include this in, his, in number one, but I think it's important to separate it. Because there's two mistakes here. One is exalting himself, the other is opposing God's choice. And so he's intentionally creating division. He's trying to divide the kingdom. He's a snake in the grass. It's not just that he's having a party for himself and trying to be king. It's that he's divided. He's coming against God's will directly. His actions would have divided the nation if Nathan and Bathsheba had not intervened with David. That would have been the result. Now it does eventually divide anyway. <laughs> So I think we can relate to Adonijah. I certainly can. I've never staged a coup, but I've had staged many coups in my heart. And I think every boss I've ever had at some point in my heart, I was like, you know, I could do better than him. I could do better than her. She doesn't appreciate me. I should be in charge. If I was in charge, you say this stuff in your heart. Maybe sometimes you've said them out loud. Maybe we don't try to stage a coup, but we're all tempted to exalt ourselves before our peers. So how, is this, how do we do this? Philip Ryken says, quote, we do it by quietly making sure we get most of the credit for the success of the project. Or by showing off the electronic gadget we recently purchased. Or by letting people know we are wearing the latest fashion. I mean, like me. or by giving the impression that we are part of the in crowd, or by doing whatever it is that people in our community do to keep score. 
What do we do at Living Hope Church to keep score? About who's blessed and who's not. Maybe we simply fuel our sense of self-importance by gently complaining about our heavy workload. Ouch. Especially the good work we do in Christian ministry. Ouch. But one way or another, we want people to know how good we are. We may not do it by riding a chariot, hiring 50 servants, and inviting celebrities over for dinner. But we do the same thing in subtler ways. We do it with what we buy, what we say, what we wear, and the general impression we try to leave that we are something more than what we really are. I think like Adonijah, the surest test of our hearts in this problem is how do we react when we get passed over for the promotion and someone else gets it that's not as qualified as us? Does jealousy, jealousy rush into our hearts along with a compulsion to steal their promotion for ourselves somehow, if only just by how we react? Hmm. Hmm. I guess. I'm happy for him. Must be nice. Us, the Southern, must be nice. What are you doing? You're stealing some of the honor from them. You're diminishing it so that it's less good for them and makes you feel a little better. And that jealousy rises up, and it always surprises me when it hits me. Like, I didn't know that was there. That's gross. Where's that coming from? Ah, not in me. But there it is. And what does it mean? It's not just about the jealousy. It's about why didn't I get promoted? It's, the, it's your heart's desire to exalt yourself into a position without God crowning you with that position. Taking it for yourself when it has not been given to you by God. The right reaction, of course, is rejoicing generously with other people's blessing and doing it in the face of your heart's temptation to get angry because you didn't get the promotion or you didn't get that recognition or you didn't get that thing that you wanted, whatever it is, whatever the status symbol is that you didn't get. When you can rejoice generously in other people getting what you want, you know your heart's right in this regard. And when jealousy comes pouring out or anger, you know something's wrong. So we'll pause in Adonijah for a moment because we, we have to see David die at the end of his life here. And what he says is this covenant blessing that ties in with Adonijah. I'll help you with that in a second. But he says at the end of his life here, he's, this is basically his last words. He's going to pronounce a blessing and he's going to give Solomon some instructions, including kill Joab. <laughs> there, there's some loose ends that I didn't take care of and I should have. I failed to, so I need you, you need to do it or it's going to destroy you. Joab, if you leave Joab alive, it's going to wreck your, your reign as king. But it's also something that I didn't do and I should have. But right in the middle of all that is this blessing from David that I think is really the key to the whole book of First and Second Kings. Here's what he says. First Kings chapter two, verses one through four, it says, "When David's time to draw, time to die drew near, 
He commanded Solomon his son, saying, now remember Solomon's already king at this point, right? He commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Another way to translate that is, the man of Israel, the king of Israel, will not be cut off from you. God won't snatch the king away, but he'll bless him instead. This covenant blessing parallels similar ones given through Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and to Joshua in Joshua 1, 6-9. It's almost word for word. The same blessing, the same covenant blessing. If you do this, I'll bless you beyond your imagination generation after generation forever. If you are righteous, if you do what I say and obey my law and, and pay attention to the way you're living, the way you're leading, if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you and I'll bless you. And what we're going to see is no one can pull it off. Not even Solomon who heard it himself. He tries really hard. It's a valiant effort. And he does a lot of good stuff. But he just can't hold it together until the end. This is how we can measure the righteousness of every king to come after David. And their failure to meet this qualification is what ultimately brings the kingdom to ruin. It's one failure to meet this demand after another. It's only in Christ that we will find the complete fulfillment of this qualification. It is an impossible standard. So Adonijah soon after makes another play for power. Really stupid. He goes to Bathsheba. Everybody goes to Bathsheba. Like her whole life. This poor woman is just a chess piece on the board being moved around. Her whole life. All because she's just pretty. From David all the way to Adonijah. He goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, look. You know, Abishag is still around. She had a lot of influence. She was David's favorite in the, his last days. She's kind of set up for life. She's got a lot of influence, a lot of power. Will you talk to, go talk to Solomon and see if he'll let me marry her. And then I can marry, kind of marry into the palace through the back door. Weasel my way in. Back into the good graces of the royal family. And so Bathsheba goes, sure. She goes to Solomon and she says, hey, this is what, uh, will you give Abishag to Solomon and, and so, or to, to Adonijah? And Solomon sees right through it immediately and says, no way. And off with his head. Right, like you just, I promised you if I found you to be wicked, I would kill you, and here you are doing another wicked thing before the ground is even flat over David's grave. He's making another play. Solomon denies the request and has Adonijah executed by 
Who else but Benaiah? <laughs> if you ever saw Benaiah knocking on your front door, <laughs> just run and hide, but there's no hiding from Benaiah. He's going to find you. <laughs> and everybody that supported him, including Joab, was killed. So Solomon has cleaned up David's loose ends and his kingdom is fully established. So let's learn the lesson of Adonijah. God will not bless unrighteous self-exaltation and self-absorption. He will not bless it. It may look like people who are self-absorbed are getting blessed for a time. And it's annoying. I don't know why it is, but, but some people out in the world just they're all about themselves and all about, I'm out here grinding, making it rain, making the money. Look at me, look how great I am. And somehow they continue to do it. But at some point, at some point, God says enough. And it might be at the end of their life, it might be in the middle of it somewhere, but God is not pleased with it because he did not crown them. He did not coronate them. He did not exalt them. They exalted themselves. God will not bless you in your self-exaltation. But there's good news. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ, you have been exalted to the highest possible place that a human can be exalted to. You have been squeezed in to the very throne of God right next to Jesus with your little toy scepter and your Burger King crown just sitting there wedged in looking up at Jesus, looking up at God just sitting there totally belonging there. Not because you were great or you're the firstborn or you're the lastborn or you're the smartest or you're the best looking or whatever it is. It's because Jesus, just the king, the only righteous king that there ever was and ever will be, he calls you his own. He calls you his friend. He calls you his brother and his sister. And he says, come sit on the throne with me. This is where you belong. So you can just relax. You don't have to fight. You don't have to fight for your place. You don't have to fight for recognition. You don't have to fight for that promotion. You work hard on that project and nobody notices. And you're like, ah, where's my recognition? Like, that's like the king saying, no one recognized me as you wear the crown and sit on the throne with him. It's silly, isn't it? God is the one who exalts us, and he already has in Christ. It's absolutely stunning where you're sitting right now. 
I know you're sitting in here. I'm not, I'm not crazy. But Paul says, yeah, you're sitting here in front of me. But at the same time, in, in another dimension that is more real than this one, you are seated in the highest place with the highest king, seated with him on his throne. You're not the king. You're just there with him, bound to him, in him. No exaltation of man can even compare to this. The good news of that is you can just relax. You don't have to scrape your way to the top of anything because you're at the top. And whenever you're experiencing now the hardship where it feels like you're at the bottom, it's just because the kingdom of God is in reverse. Jesus came, he condescended. The king, the righteous king, came down to the bottom because that's where the top is. The whole thing is flipped. And so he crawled his way down to the bottom and then he died. And he said, hey, attach yourself to me because I'm going up. And he attaches himself to you and he says, and he ascends where? To the throne. Seated at the right hand of the Father. And you're with him in that place. So being at the bottom is okay. We humble ourselves and he's the one who exalts us. Amen? So why don't we pray together? I want to I bless you or pray that the Holy Spirit would bless you with more humility. Oh. Scary, I'm afraid, because he might do it. So why don't we stand up together? <laughs> if, if you don't want me to pray this for you, just sit down. I mean, <laughs> look, you're still in the blast zone, I'm sorry. Now that I've said it out of my mouth, it's just going to happen whether you stand or sit. But you can pretend if you want. This is what God does. So God, we, here we are. and We see Adonijah and his pride and his rebellion. And on the one hand, it just seems so awful and reprehensible, and it is, but at the same time, we see ourselves in him. that need for affirmation from the wrong places. The scrambling for position at any cost. God, all of it is so familiar to everybody in this room and it, it's grievous to us. So God, I know the answer is not to just try not to be that way. God, instead, I just want to see where I'm actually seated right now. So Holy Spirit, would you humble us enough that we could see what you've done for us with a new kind of clarity. That we are seated in a place where by all accounts we don't belong at all. But you have given us your righteousness. And because of that we do belong right there next to you. So help us just to relax in that place. Help us to be humble enough to not pretend like we're really great kings, but instead just to relax and be with you. 
to enjoy that throne room of grace, to delight in what you're doing through us in the world, to delight in each other. God, I pray that we would have the kind of joy that looks at each other and says, can you believe this is where we are? Can you believe what he's done for us? God, that we would just be bewildered by what you've done in us. I know that takes humility. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We just found ourselves here in your grace to help us, God, to be at peace, to be at rest, to not scratch and crawl and clamor for another inch of self-exalted glory, but instead help us to humble ourselves at your throne because that's where we belong. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.